0: welcome to the north sound church podcast for more information about north sound church please visit our website at Northsoundchurch.com. well good morning welcome to north sound church it is so good to see each one of you so glad that you chose to join us this morning thank you ensemble that was wonderful you get to hear these guys more if you come to the parade tomorrow, because they will be singing on the North Sound Church float, and uh, we are looking forward to them entertaining the thousands of people that come uh, and participate in the parade. As you heard, we can still use some help handing out flags. Our oldest, Barb's and my oldest grandson Ethan, is six, and I think since the time he was about two, Papa and Ethan would walk in the parade. Handing out flags, and so we must have done it for about four years now, and plan to do it again. And Thomas at four and Grandma, I think, are going to do it this year, aren't they? Maybe, yeah. Grandma doesn't like people looking at her, so that's. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, <laughs> okay. Any, any, anybody have a place I could go for the afternoon? Um, anyway. Um, we, uh, we also have a great spot to watch the parade for those of you who whatever reason are unable to, uh, to help. Uh, and it's the little white church which so beautifully decorated for the 4th. Uh, thanks to the team uh, who did that. And so um, you're welcome to come and join us there. Um, but for those of you that haven't participated before truly if you have children or grandchildren who you think would love walking in the parade with the North Sound float and handing stuff out um, you would be more than welcome. You just would show up here, Pastor Allen. About eleven thirty up there. Yeah, at is that sixth? Is it sixth um, where the where we start? Oh, okay, the little white church, and then up to wherever we start the parade and on from there. So, hope you can join us uh, for that. We are beginning a new series today called In the Beginning. Beginning, beginning a new series called In the Beginning. And um, I'm looking forward to it. I have been looking forward to this sermon series. We did uh, something like this a few years ago, and there are key passages of Scripture that we probably should get in every two or three years because they are so important. And Genesis <coughs> excuse me, 1-3 to three are just phenomenally important, so we 're going to spend the summer <coughs> excuse me, looking at Genesis one to three. There is so much here, and I want to encourage you to read and meditate on these chapters, chapters one to three, when you have an opportunity, perhaps work it into your devotional life this summer. Um, there are some resources that I have used that I mentioned to you. Uh, Creation and Blessing, A Guide to the Study and Exposition of Genesis by Alan Ross, The Genesis of Perfection by Gary Anderson and The Word Biblical Commentary for Genesis 1-15 to 15 by Gordon Wynnum. I mentioned these today, I may not mention them again, um, and they're a little um, not light reading, so you may want to, um, you know, if you may want to plan on wading in if you go that direction, but they're good resources. This morning I want to start with one small verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, one. The Hebrew is Bereshith bara Elohim. In beginning God. And it's the way Genesis 1 and indeed the entire Bible begins in beginning God. And as we read this we... Um, Need to understand that Hebrew is a little bit different than English in the Hebrew Bible, and I, I, I did a screenshot of this passage, Genesis one, from the Hebrew Bible, and wouldn't you know, I couldn't find it when I was loading up the PowerPoint this morning. Um, Hebrew is really kind of crazy-looking stuff. It's kind of like hen scratches. Um, and it's difficult, at least it was difficult for me in seminary. Um, wonderful story when I was in seminary, I heard about a Hebrew professor who was, as he was smoking his pipe, was looking at this passage and he could not make sense because the Hebrew is, looks like squiggles to us. And it has little dots on it, and the dots were added sometime later. They're called vowel pointings, and the vowel pointings um, give us some indication of how to pronounce uh, the Hebrew words. But this professor was was profoundly perplexed by this passage uh, until his wife came into his study bringing him coffee, looked down on his Hebrew Bible and proceeded to knock off some of the ashes that had fallen from his pipe. And now the passage made complete sense to him. Hebrew was something, as I said, I had to study in college or had the privilege of studying in college. I got an A plus in Hebrew but I remember almost nothing, which is, which is tragic today uh, for that to be the case. The one thing that I do remember is the Hebrew word for Tent. The Hebrew word for tent is (laughs) ohel. And as a seminary student, it was kind of cool to be able to say ohel. And mean tent, right? That was just the way way it went. So as we approach Genesis 1, we want to point out that there are two fundamentally different worldviews. Two fundamentally different ways that we approach life. One of those is that natural selection began in the primordial ooze billions of years ago when carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen came together in early amino acids. and They developed protein and protein developed more complex life in the, in the ooze and then there were amphibians and then there were other animals and over time human beings were developed. But this was a blind process. There was no overall purpose or goal to this process. And while individuals now today at this point in that process may have developed some sense of purpose or meaning for their lives, the fact of the matter is all who live die and their remains turn back to dust and eventually with little trace of them having ever been here at all. That's one worldview. Genesis 1-3 to offers a very different view of human origins. It begins with the words, in the beginning God. Those words are the reality, and the reality, they represent change everything. Because whether God took 13.7 billion years or whether he did it in, six did the creation 6,000 years ago, the point is, is that he was the one behind creation. He was the creator and our universe and our worldview has intentionality. We are here for a reason. God is the creator. He created us and the world for a purpose. We connect with the divine purposes of God and we help bring creation forward in relationship with God. We work and pray for what the Lord's Prayer says that we did just a few moments ago, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what our calling is in a purposeful universe with a creator. He has brought us into fellowship with him and now he calls us to carry forward that creation and as we do that our prayer is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We not only have meaning and purpose in our own lives, but we are a part of God's big plan and have that wonderful promise that this life does not end at 90 years of age, but because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we shall live forever in great fellowship with God, continuing to live out God's divine purposes. So like the good Bible interpreters, we want to ask ourselves some questions about the text that we're looking at today. And one of those questions is why this account of creation was written. Now if you followed us over the last month we introduced two kind of big words but the big words were done purposefully to illustrate concepts and the concepts they were to illustrate is hopefully you'll remember because they were unusual words. And the first concept was exegesis and exegesis, it was pretty quiet when I asked the congregation in the first service what that meant, so I'm not even going to try <laughs> here. But exegesis means that we bring out of the text what it meant for the original audience. And in order to understand what it means for today, we really need to know what it meant at that time. And then hermeneutics, that other fancy word we used, is how we apply the text to our lives today. And we need to do both of those in order to understand the creation account. And so the creation account gives us a profound theological understanding of the uniqueness of Israel as God's people and the first audience for Genesis chapter 1 was indeed the people of Israel. And it showed them the purpose of creation. It talked to them about a creator. It illustrated for them the seven day week that was a part of their life which was six days of work and one day of rest, the Sabbath. There's an outline that Ross, one of the authors I mentioned, gives us of some key elements that explain this basic theme and I want to hit them fairly quickly with you this morning. The first one is that the creation story reveals the sovereignty of the God of creation. God made everything, therefore God is the one who is in control of all things. God made everything, therefore God is the one that is in control of all things. Think of how powerful a revelation this must have been to the people of Israel. Remember in this time they were surrounded by other nations who worshipped other gods. Their gods were false gods, but they still challenged the one true God for allegiance and love. But the other gods were identified with the moon and the stars and animals and rivers and you name it. And so it was obvious that the one true God actually made everything in the other nations that the other nations identified as gods. But unfortunately the people of Israel were tempted to worship the gods of the other nations. God destroyed the gods of Egypt in Exodus 18.11. We read about that in Numbers 33. And he destroyed the gods of Canaan in Joshua 10 verses 12 to 13. So that's exegesis. Exegesis. That's looking at this passage and seeing what it meant for the people of Israel. But now we're going to do a little hermeneutics and we're going to talk about what this means to us. What does it mean to us today? Well, have you noticed that we live in a time when people serve other gods? Have you noticed that? People around us don't worship the sun, moon, stars, animals, etc., There are no doubt that many gods are still around us that tempt every one of us, but there's one in particular, and that is today, friends, we tend to worship at the altar of personal autonomy. Personal autonomy. It's described by the Encyclopedia of Philosophy as the capacity to decide for oneself and pursue a course of action in one's life, often regardless of any particular moral content. So, in other words personal autonomy means that we worship at the God that says do what good, what you feel like doing. It feels good, if it feels good, do it. So, in the discussion of abortion the right to bodily autonomy is demanded fits with our culture. It fits with the cultural God of personal autonomy doing what we want to do. Recently Tish Harrison Warren addressed this myth of bodily autonomy in a New York's Times opinion piece and I want to share a long quotation because she does a good job but this is actually a highly edited version of what she actually says and I actually encourage you to read the entire thing. She says, here are three ways that I find abortion rights arguments that appeal to bodily autonomy unpersuasive and ultimately harmful to our understanding of freedom and what it means to be human. She says, first of all, bodily autonomy is limited by our obligation not to harm others. We already recognize in law that there are limits to physical autonomy. One can't walk down the street naked even if one wants to or go 75 miles an hour in a school zone, even if slowing down poses a burden on the driver. She says these limits came up in the Dobbs oral argument, and twice Justice Clarence Thomas brought up a case where a woman was convicted of child neglect for ingesting harmful illegal drugs while pregnant. The Supreme Court's majority opinion in Dobbs addresses this as well, saying that an appeal to autonomy at the high level of generality could license fundamental rights to illicit drug use, prostitution and the like. Our desires to do as we wish with our bodies must be respected, but they also must be limited by the needs and rights of others, including those who live inside our own bodies. She goes on to say the term autonomy denies the deep interdependence and limitations of every human body she says one definition of autonomy is independence but no human has complete bodily autonomy from birth to death the natural state of human beings is to be deeply and irrevocably interdependent on one another The only reason any of us is alive today is that someone cared for us as children in the womb and then as infants and toddlers. Almost all of us through age or disability or both will eventually depend on other human beings, other human bodies to bathe, dress, feed, and otherwise care for us. And finally, the third thing she says is the pressing issue when it comes to abortion is whether championing bodily autonomy requires us to override or undo biological realities. She says in the Dobbs oral arguments, Judy Rickelman described what women experience if they lack access to abortion. She says, Rickelman says, allowing, uh, allowing a state to take control of a woman's body and force her to undergo the physical demands risks and life-altering consequences of pregnancy is a fundamental deprivation of her liberty. But is restricting abortion the same thing as forced gestation, she says? Is it correct to compare abortion restrictions to a state taking control of a woman's body and a deprivation of liberty? She says whatever one thinks sex is and what it is for, whether it's a sacred act or a mere recreational pleasure, all of us can agree that sex is the only human activity that has the power to create life and that every potentially procreative sexual act therefore carries some risk that pregnancy could occur. She says birth control significantly lessens this risk but does not entirely take it away since birth control methods can fail. Yet the state does not impose this risk of producing human life. Biology does. Except in the horrible circumstances of rape or incest which account for 1% of abortions, women and men both have bodily agency and choices about whether they will have sex and therefore if they are willing to accept the risk of new life inherent in it. She says, for both men and women, bodily autonomy can't mean that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, with our own bodies, without natural consequences or obligations to others. If this is what we mean by autonomy, then no one can champion bodily autonomy without eventually advocating harm. Friends, too many Americans worship at the altar of the God of personal autonomy, were not in control. The people of Israel were assured, reassured, when they read the story of creation and things were going badly around them that God, not them, was in control. When things were going badly around them, they were reassured that God and not them was in control. Just a few years ago, the Crane family, that is, Barry and Barb and Sean and Jennifer and Ryan and Marissa. Um, Scotty didn't join us on this trip, but we had a wonderful boat trip with my brother John and his wife Michelle on their 60-foot boat in Alaska. We flew up to Sitka, joined them on their boat, and just had an amazing time in Hoonah Sound, Uh, we had about as much crab and shrimp and fish as we could eat. It was just an amazing experience. Now John, in essence, created the boat. He bought the boat from Sheldon Jackson College. It was a marine biology study uh, boat for the college, and it had 24 racks in it for 24 marine biology students. And John uh, took all of that out, drew a design for the boat, put in staterooms and a galley, and it was, uh, was really an amazing boat. Now, I discovered that the creator of the boat had to put in many systems that would keep us safe and underway for our return. Captain Bill, you know something about that. But on our trip, I began to count the things that failed on the boat. The holding tanks, the generator, the backup inverter system, the anchor, an adequate water supply, the outboard motor on the skiff, the toilet, and you get the idea. I was glad that John, the creator of the vessel, was in control. You know, on that boat, we did not practice personal autonomy. We didn't vote on how to fix things. We didn't say, I want to do it my way. We yielded to the captain who was the creator of the vessel. We knew he was in control and we knew that when we yielded to his control, we would get along very well. Friends, there are times in recent years when I've been deeply troubled by the direction of our culture. As people, we seem to believe that we know better than God. As Chief Justice Roberts said a few years ago regarding a Supreme Court decision that swung to yet one more affirmation of personal autonomy, he said, regarding Supreme Court decisions, he said, Who do we think we are? So we remain terribly concerned about the direction of our culture, but Jesus tells us not to fear. He reminds us that He is the one who is in us and the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world and the scripture tells us in Romans 8 that even though bad stuff happens to good people God's promise, His promise is that for those who love God, all things work together for good to the purposes that God has for us. Secondly, I want to mention that we are also reminded that the creation account laid the foundation for the law we tend to think of the law, that is the Ten Commandments and others that followed as being much later in history, but in fact it was much much earlier in that in Genesis itself we have laid the foundation for the, for the, for the law in, in this way. If God were the creator God before all others it would make no sense to worship any other God, right? Ten Commandments. If God made human beings in His image to carry out His work on earth, how crazy it would be to make images of God. Ten Commandments. If God took a Sabbath rest on the seventh day, would it not make sense for those created in His image to do so as well? It would make sense. God created through His powerful Word and later when the people of Israel received authoritatively the Word of God, they knew it was because they understood the creative Word of God at creation. We seem to be in a time when Some Christians have abandoned the word of God in seeking to fit in with the culture around us. We've swallowed the lie that morality comes from nine people in black roads or a majority vote of Congress. Friends, God wants us to follow His truth and His word that's found in the Bible. At North Sound we believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God. That means it's true. It means that God's will is revealed through it, and we just don't believe it contains the Word of God, because if it just contains the Word of God, then we are the ones that go through the Scripture determining what we believe and what we don't believe, and, and where does that get us when we become the arbitrary determiner of truth? We believe the entire Bible is God's Word and needs to be followed. History has shown us that sinful human beings tend to pass by the parts of the word they don't like. We may fail in the application of the word in our lives, but we can't deny that it has authority over our lives, all of it. Some of you have been a part of the Alpha course, and uh, Nicky Gumbel is just delightful. I think I mentioned recently that Nicky is retiring uh, this summer from his Role As the vicar, the senior pastor of Holy Trinity Brompton, he tells this wonderful story that speaks so well to this point. He says some years ago when my eldest son was eight years of age, they used to play football on Clapham Common in London. And they had their regular football during the year. Andy Busk was their coach, and he was the referee. And I remember one time at the end of term, they had arranged a kind of sports day. And I went along. I think I was the only father at the match, actually, because it was midweek and in the afternoon and Andy Busk hadn't turned up. So they kind of press ganged a referee and it was me. He said, I had a number of difficulties because, first of all, at that time on Clapham Common, there weren't football pitches, so there were no markings for where the goals were or where the lines were. So I put a couple of sweaters down for the goals. The other thing I didn't have was a whistle. The boys didn't have different colors. They were just in their sort of kind of ordinary clothes. And also, I didn't know the rules, (laughs) nor did I know their names. I knew my son's name, but I didn't know the other people's names. And so the match started and one boy shouted, oh, the ball's out. And another boy shouted, no, that's not out. So I didn't know. So I'm kind of a non-confrontational person anyway. I just said, play on, play on. And uh, then someone did a foul and someone said, hey, that's a foul. And someone else said, that's not a foul. I didn't know whether it was a foul or not. So I said, play on, play on. And literally there were three or four small boys lying on the ground and the place looked like a battlefield. (laughs) And he says, and eventually to my immense relief, I saw Andy Busk arriving on his bike. Andy Busk had his whistle. He knew the boys' names. He put them in teams. Every time there was a foul or the ball went out, he blew the whistle, stopped the game, and imposed the rules. Now, were they more free when I was refereeing and there was total chaos? Or were they more free when there was someone in charge and there was a definite set of rules? Within that set of rules, they were free to enjoy the game. Friends, the Bible is like God's rule book. When we follow its instructions, then we find freedom. I finally move to point number three, which is the account of creation also reveals God's activity in, re- in redemption, we're going to spend more time on this uh, in the days ahead. But we see at the very beginning that the earth was without form and void. There was nothingness, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. There were no luminaries, there were no stars, no light, no sun, no moon. The world was a dark place. But by the end of creation, we find a beautiful word, a paradise, a, a rest. Blessed and sanctified by God. God turns darkness to light. He turns chaos to creation. And this foreshadowed for the people of Israel going from the darkness of chaos of Egypt to the promised land of rest. And this pattern of God's redemptive work began at creation and continues through his relationship with the people of Israel. Friends, we have this amazing pattern with God that continues right down to today. He takes the bad and makes it good. He takes the dark and makes it light. He takes the broken and brings healing. He takes His Son to the cross for our salvation. He becomes the means by which our sins are forgiven. We experience the heart of God for redemption that began with the creation of the world. I close with a very simple story. The simple story is of a little boy who built a boat. He was so proud of his boat, he took that boat and tied a string to it and went to the nearby river and watched while his boat went out into the current and he held onto the boat and watched it meander in the current until at one moment the string broke, the boat went free And as he rushed down the riverside in case the boat came to shore, it got farther and farther out, and alas, he could not reach it anymore. It was just a few days later that uh, he was walking in their small town, and they had a kind of a variety store, hobby shop, knick-knack shop, and there in the window was a boat that just looked like his. And as he got closer, he discovered that indeed that was his boat. So he went inside and said to the proprietor, that's my boat. And the proprietor of the store said, well, son, someone just brought that in this morning. And he said, if you want that boat, you're going to have to buy it. And he said, that boat will cost $20. So the little boy ran home, dumped out his piggy bank, went into the desk drawer and found whatever he could find and he came up with $20 and he went back and he bought that boat. And as he got outside the store he cuddled that boat, he held onto it and he said, now you're twice mine. First I made you and now I bought you. And friends, The story of creation tells us that God made us, and the story of the Bible tells us that He bought us through the cross. We are twice His. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for the fact that we are indeed twice Yours, that we are indeed created by you, that our lives have been given to us to partner with you with purpose to make a difference in this world for good to see your kingdom come and your will be done. And Lord, we thank you that in spite of our failures the failures that each one of us have had in our lives, you bought us You not only created us, but you went to the cross to become the means by which our sins are forgiven. And so, Lord, may each one of us yield to the Creator, yield to the Savior, and find the ultimate freedom that you offer us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.